And please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 149. You can find this on page 724 in the Pew Bible. Last week we finished a year-long series through the book of Judges. And so my plan is to preach on some different things related to Advent in the coming weeks and then in January to do a brief series through the book of Ruth because Ruth is set in the period of the Judges. Uh, so we'll, um, we've seen the, the uh, ugly side of life in the Judges and Ruth gives us a little window on a happier uh, side of life and so it's a good balance to the book of Judges. So we'll come back to that in January, Lord willing. But for day, today, I thought Psalm 149 as a good way to think about uh, our Thanksgiving as the holidays just passed and how and why uh, we are to give our thanks to the Lord. So let's give attention now. This is Psalm 149. This is the word of God. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. And there will end the reading of God's word. I should have said we're going to use a selection of Psalm 149 as our psalm of the month for the month of December. So you're getting an early reflection on this psalm that we'll be singing in the next month. Well, I suppose it's easy to look at the news and perhaps the football scores and find little reason for optimism or hope in our particular area here. Uh, we know we're supposed to be thankful, right? We just had the holiday, and yet sometimes it's not very easy to actually feel like giving thanks. Sometimes it doesn't look like there's much to celebrate. And we need to realize that the commentators think this psalm was written during the period uh, of the exile or after the exile when the people had just come back from Babylon. And if you remember their circumstances then, uh, they were struggling against uh, hunger and other problems. They had opposition uh, from the people that lived around them. There was infighting going on within their community. And uh, on top of all that, when they started to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, uh, they cried when they saw how small and insignificant it was compared uh, to the temple that had been knocked down by Nebuchadnezzar. So the, the, the psalm actually was given in a context where the people didn't feel much like celebrating. And yet, uh, they were called to sing this psalm of thanksgiving and celebration. And the same may be true in your own life. You may be in a position where you don't feel very much like celebrating. Uh, your prospects for the future seem bleak. Uh, work is tough. Your children are difficult. Uh, you wonder if you're spending your time the way God really wants you to. 
And so the question is, how are you going to thank God and to live a life of gratitude in these circumstances? And the psalm gives us some help in how to do that because it points out that God has given you abundant reasons to give him thanks and it encourages you to reflect on those even as you commit yourself to thanking him, to praising him with gratitude in both your worship and your warfare. And that's an interesting thing to put worship and warfare together, but that's what this psalm does and we'll try to explain uh, what that means. And children, if you wanna draw a picture, uh, I, th I think in your outline I said you could draw a picture of your family celebrating Thanksgiving and maybe thinking about how you could do that. If, if you, uh, some of you boys don't like that idea and you wanna draw a picture of yourself uh, thanking God on the one hand and holding a sword in your hand on the other hand, you could try that as well. I always enjoy seeing what you draw for me. Well, there's an outline in the bulletin, and if you would like to follow along, you'll see the first thing we want to notice is that we're called to express our gratitude by praising God in all circumstances. So the theme of the psalm is praise. That seems pretty obvious. It's mentioned in four of the nine verses of the psalm. The psalm begins and ends with the Hebrew word hallelujah, praise the Lord. It is a praise the Lord sandwich, as they said. The last five psalms in the, in the Psalter uh, are considered the great doxology of, of the Psalter, and every one of them begins and ends with praise the Lord. There are a total of nine psalms that actually work this way with praise the Lord at the beginning and the end, and they cluster toward the end of the psalm book. And so while there's much lament and there's many other things expressed in the psalms, as you move through the book of psalms, the emphasis is on praise and celebration as you move toward the end. And note here that when praise is mentioned in these verses, verse one, verse three, verse six, and verse nine, it's mentioned as a second person plural imperative, that it is a command for you all to praise God. And I think sometimes we buy into our culture's view of praise and love, right? That these are not things we can be commanded to do. Uh, you know, we fall in, we fall out of love. Love is something that happens to us. It's based on our feelings, right? That's the cultural view. It's not the biblical view. The, the Bible does command us to love. It views love primarily as an action. And we, we do the loving action and our emotions then will follow us. And the same thing is true with praise. We are commanded to praise. We are not to rely on our emotions uh, to tell us when we can praise. And so uh, our, our, our responsibility isn't just to give thanks to the Lord and praise when things are going well. We sure, certainly should do that, but we are to do it in all circumstances. And again, with the context of this psalm, the people coming back from exile and, and, and facing a very hard and bleak situation, they are still to express their gratitude uh, to the Lord. There was a story this week in the newspaper about a, a woman who lived uh, down near McCormick's Creek State Park who was caught in that tornado that went through last March. And uh, she said she was in her house and then the next thing she knew, she was in the middle of the road with her house in splinters all around her. And it literally had picked up her house and just broke her house and spread it uh, all over the area and all over the street. 
And uh, she was alive, and she was grateful to be alive. But she said, you, know, you literally lose everything that you own in the entire world. And it's difficult. You know, you're asking yourself, uh, how did I get here? How, how, how do I... You know, how do I even begin to rebuild my life and to go forward? You feel like you have absolutely nothing. And sometimes I think that we can feel like that as well. We look at, we, we've gotten ourselves in a position in life and we're asking ourselves, how did I get here? And this is not what I had planned for myself. And where should I be going next? And, and how do I get out of this? And we had several families this year celebrating Thanksgiving in the nursing home or in the hospital right? Not where you want to be. Uh, difficult. They're certainly trying to give thanks to God in the midst of very trying circumstances. And that is the question. How? How do we thank God? Well, the psalm suggests how we can do this by reminding us of what we have to be thankful for and then actually helping us understand how we are to give our thanks. So we are to express thanks in praise to God in all circumstances. And secondly, then we see one of the reasons. We thank him because he has taken away our sins. So three times in this psalm, in the middle uh, verse, in verse 5, and then in both ends of the verse, verses 1 and 9, uh, the psalm refers to the Hasidim. Uh, that's where we, the term from which we get Hasidic Jew. And it's, it's, it's a derivative of a word in Hebrew that means mercy. And so it's literally the, the merciful or the kind and sometimes translated the pious. And so in my translation, it translated it the saints each time. Uh, some other translations translate it the godly ones or the godly. And uh, these are people who are committed to living according to God's mercy and extending that mercy outward. And in the New Testament, it refers to these same people, these saints, as those who have put their faith in Christ and are seeking to live for Christ in the world. Now, Paul addresses saints in many of his letters. I put one example in your uh, bulletin there from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, where Paul writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints right this is what it means to be a believer is that you're set aside to serve God and obviously there's a lot of confusion in our world today about how one becomes a saint and so there's a whole bunch of people that think well that that's when the church in Rome tells you you're a saint and you've earned uh, you know enough merit badges that that's what makes you a saint but the Bible says no it's God who makes you a saint and he does that through the Lord Jesus Christ because in reality he takes people who are not worthy of his grace people who are not godly who are not merciful who are not holy and he credits to them the mercy and the holiness and the godliness of Jesus Christ and he takes their sin away and that's why the psalm can refer to the people of God as the godly as the saints as we read in this translation and that's what the Bible says you are in Christ not because of your own accomplishments but because of Christ's accomplishments for you so children, it'd be like if, you know, you're all dressed up for Thanksgiving and then you go out for the uh, after dinner football game and you forgot, forget to take off your nice clothes and you get them all torn up and dirty. And uh, you think, oh no, I'm in big trouble. 
And then along comes your brother and says, here, uh, take this new set of clothes that I have for you and I'll take your dirty ones away from you. That's what Jesus does for us. He takes our sin and what we've done wrong, he takes it on himself and he gives to us his perfect righteousness. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for me, he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's a wonderful truth for all people who are uh, in Christ. And this would be true for the Old Testament people as well. They were praising God for his grace to them in making them his saints. Uh, They understood that they didn't make themselves saints, that God made them saints. And you too can sing about being a saint and calling the other saints into worship knowing that God in Christ has taken away your sins. And if nothing else, if you're in the worst circumstances you could be in, if you have your sins taken away and you're not on the road to hell, you have something to be thankful for. You have something really, really great to thank God for. He's taken away your sins. We also see here that we can thank him because he made you and he takes care of you. We see this in verse two. So Psalm 149 doesn't stop there. It gives us more reasons to thank God. And there it calls God in the second verse, uh, both the maker of the people and the king of the people. But notice it doesn't say uh, he's a king and he's a maker. It says, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. He's the king, he's the creator who belongs to them. And that's another wonderful cause for rejoicing that you, if you're a a Christian, you belong to somebody who made you and who loves you and who is taking care of you. Matthew Henry in speaking about this says, our praises of God should flow from a heart filled with delight and triumph in God's attributes and our relationship to him. It'd be one thing if we praise this great and glorious God for all of his wonderful attributes so that he's worthy of our praise. But on top of that, it's not just that he's out there away from us, he's our God. He's come to us, he's made us, particularly how he wants us, and he says, I'm going to be your king, your ruler, I'm going to take care of you. And how meaningful that would have been to these people to recognize that they had a God who was a glorious and good king after all the bad kings that they had suffered under. And they would have understand that this, understood that this is a reference to their Messiah, the, the Davidic king. I put another cross-reference in the outline from Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, which says, speaking of the Messiah, he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's a description of the Lord Jesus Christ come as that glorious king. Uh, I read an article recently saying that uh, Gen Z, the the 30 and under group, uh, now uh, fully 40% of them in surveys um, puts down none, uh, they're non-affiliated. They have no religious connections or beliefs whatsoever. And uh, it's no wonder 
that we're dealing with epidemics of anxiety and depression and suicide and all the rest of it. The idea that we just, that there is nothing out there and that we're not here by design and that we don't have a creator. It makes all the difference in terms of understanding who we are. Now at the risk of getting silly here, I don't want this to be silly, but if you kids have probably seen some of the Toy Story movies. All right, so you know about Woody and Buzz. Is that true, some of you? Okay. Well, in the second movie, you might remember uh, Woody gets hurt. You know, he gets his arm torn, and uh, he, he sort of gets taken away uh, from Andy, his owner. And uh, he, he, he w- first wants to get back, but then he realizes, well, you know what? Um, I'm, I've already got a torn arm, and maybe Andy's going to get tired of me someday, and I'll just be thrown on the trash heap. And maybe it'd be better for me to go and live in a museum. And so you remember that the guy wants to make him all nice and just put him with the other toys in a museum where they would never be played with, you know, never get dirty or anything like that. And uh, he's kind of really wrestling with that. And then um, he, he scrapes the, the paint, the new paint that he'd been given off the bottom of his boot. And remember, he had, Andy had written his name on his boot. And he remembered, I belong to somebody who loves me. That's who I am. And that may make a big difference in terms of what you think is important and who you think you are. And you and I, if, if you are Christians this morning, have something far better uh, than Andy uh, written on the bottom of your foot. Uh, you have the Lord God has put on you his name. And he says, you belong to him. And that, that changes everything. You have a God who owns you, who made you just like he wants you, and who loves you and is committed to caring for you. And that's a reason uh, to give him thanks and to celebrate him. Um, fourthly here, we're also told that we ought to thank him because he gives us victory over our enemies. And this might be hard for us to see, but that's what's going on in verses three and four, where here it tells us to praise his name with the dance and to sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. And so you have to recognize this is a picture of something in their past, and it's, it's cultural, uh, culturally relevant, enthusiastic praise, but this is pointing us back to the victory of God that he won for his people at the Red Sea. And they came across the Red Sea and the women danced and they played their tambourines and they sang in thanksgiving to the Lord. And it's a picture of joyful celebration for the Lord's victories. And this is what it says then in verse four, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people, he will beautify the humble with salvation. And in general, when they were singing about salvation, they're thinking about deliverance from enemies, that they are facing enemies who are too great for them, and God comes alongside of them and delivers them. And of course, they, they were people, although they were suffering, they could look in the past and see how God had brought them into the promised land, and they'd won all those victories. And then they'd been taken out in exile, but God had brought them back after exile, and he was taking care of his people. 
And it, it, the, passage, the verse says something really profound in verse four because it says in the second half of the verse, he will beautify the humble with salvation. That salvation, deliverance, uh, beautifies God's people. And, and certainly uh, we understand that losing and defeat uh, is ugly and depressing. And we're not gonna talk about the IU football program or anything like that, but you understand that uh, sports teams that lose perpetually, they, that's when the fans like wear paper bags on their heads when they go in. There, there's, there's a humiliating impact to all of that. And so God is saying you're just the opposite. Like God is reversing their fortunes. God is giving them victory. And of course, this isn't just temporal, this is spiritual as well. This is what Christ does for us. He takes the ugliness of our sin and our impending uh, death and all that's, uh, that's bad in the world because of sin and he makes it beautiful in the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes away, he takes away your sin and he destroys that final enemy, that enemy of death that's haunting all of us. Death cannot hold the Christian. It cannot keep us in bondage. And this gives us a wonderful reason to praise and to thank God. But I think the first part of verse four might even be more helpful for us because it tells us there that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Why does God save you? Why does he deliver you from your enemies of sin and death and all that would be against you. And it says, because he takes delight in his people, those who are humble, those who are meek, and who trust in him. And I think it's, it's hard for us to fully grasp what this is saying, because those of us who are interested in Reformed theology, uh, we've really got a bead on total depravity and our sinfulness and our inability to please God. And those things are true, absolutely true. But sometimes we forget the essential other part of that. And that is that God takes delight in his people. Those that he's chosen for salvation, those that Jesus comes and dies for. And I think it's really easy for us to keep reminding ourselves, boy, I'm a sinner, I'm struggling. And we forget, what does the Bible say? You are a forgiven sinner. You're, you are one in whom the Lord himself takes delight. And your identity is not in the sin with which you still struggle. Your identity is in the fact that you are united to Jesus Christ the one who delights in you. And that's how you're able, this, the verse four tells us, to delight in the Lord is because he delights in you. His delight in you is what enables you then to thank and to praise his name. And that's a wonderful reason to give thanks to the Lord. He has won the victory for you over sin and death and the devil and all that stands against you because he delights in you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well then how, this has given us some reasons to thank God, but how are we to thank him? And we see here fifthly that we thank him in our worship. Uh, the people are called to sing to the Lord a new song in the, uh, in the assembly of the saints. And so here's clearly a reference here to the public worship 
the, the word that's used there for the assembly is often uh, translated uh, in other translations. That's the church. That's the, the group that meets to worship God. And a new song in the Bible is a song of salvation. Uh, this term is used seven times in the Bible. It's six times in Psalms and once in Isaiah. And it always seems to be associated with deliverance from enemies. Uh, we sing a song of salvation where we celebrate God's deliverance of us. And uh, the Bible tells us that we can do this in the assembly. Uh, Hebrews 13:15 says, therefore let uh, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So as you come into the worship, this is what you are to bring, uh, an expression of thanksgiving to the Lord for your deliverance. And you offer it to the Lord for what he has done to you. And, and our gratitude should be overflowing as we worship him. But notice that the psalm isn't just talking about worshiping the Lord in the assembly. Uh, because look at verse 5 where it says, let the saints be joyful in glory, let them sing aloud on their beds. And so here we have, you know, the worshiper leaves the assembly and now he goes into the privacy of the home and there where no one is looking and can see what you're doing, he's still praising the Lord. And that's what's so important is that we're not just doing things out in public to be seen, but when nobody's looking, in the privacy of our home, we're still there worshiping God and giving thanks to him because he is the one, as the verse says, who has given us uh, his glory. Uh, the, the origin of the Thanksgiving holiday, um, as, it's, as it's celebrated today, actually comes from the Civil War. Uh, that in October of, of 1863, uh, President Lincoln called for a national day of Thanksgiving, and he was the one that put it on the fourth Thursday of November. But think about that. A national day of Thanksgiving in the midst of the Civil War, uh, just months after the Battle of Gettysburg, and all the death and destruction that was dividing the nation. And the war went on for some time after this. But he called the people to thank God and to beseech God for his help, but to thank God, to find reasons for gratitude in the midst of that terrible conflict. And so we, we recognize annual celebrations of Thanksgiving, annual remembrances, those are good uh, for sort of stirring us up to do what we should do, but we often have trouble doing. But how, how much more then that every week you have an opportunity to come into the public worship where hopefully your focus is taken off yourself and put on God. That's the idea, that you're getting outside of yourself and your focus is, is on what God has done and who God is. And so as you're doing that week by week and you're rehearsing the great things that God has done, this actually is not only a way you express your gratitude, you give thanks, but it helps cultivate a thankful heart in your own life. And this is another one of the reasons why doing family worship at home is so important because you're constantly reminding all the members in your home that you are dependent upon God, that you have so much to be thankful for to God. And so not only do you give thanks, but you cultivate a heart of thankfulness. 
And the psalm is pointing us in that direction, that our worship of God should be uh, overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude. It should be a high, high priority. And we should have confidence that God uses us in our lives to help us grow in our gratitude to him. So you are to thank God in your worship and you are also finally to thank him in your warfare. And here we come to this seemingly bizarre ending to this psalm in verses six to nine. Uh, Verse six is great because you have on the one hand, let the high praises of God be in their mouth. All right, so here we are praising God and a two-edged sword in their hand. And that's what I asked you to to, uh, draw, children, if you wanted to. So we sing while we hold a sword in our hand. How exactly does that work? Well, look at what the psalm goes on to say. What are we doing with this sword? Well, verse seven, to execute vengeance on the nation and punishments on the people. That's a parallelism there, right? So we're, we're, we're going against uh, the pagans. Verse eight, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. And then finally, verse nine, to execute on them the written judgment, this honor have all the saints. And this reminds us, this isn't our own vengeance. This is God's vengeance. Who is it who has written this judgment? God has done it. God has committed himself to eventually overthrowing everything that stands opposed to him in this world. And uh, whether we realize it or not, uh, the kingdom of God cannot advance and fill the world like it is supposed to unless the kingdom of evil is subdued and done away with. I put in your outline uh, a shorter catechism question on the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is thy kingdom come. What are we praying for when we pray thy kingdom come? And the catechism says that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. That's part of that prayer, thy kingdom come, that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. Well, how does that happen? Well, thank God, a lot of times Satan's kingdom is destroyed because people like you and me who are in that kingdom are brought out of that kingdom and converted and made servants of God. And and this is what we want to see happen. Uh, Sometimes that doesn't happen and God removes the enemies of his church, but that's God's work in the world. And so how are we to sing praises with the sword in our hand? Well, in the Old Testament times, there were literally times when that's what they were doing. In fact, when they came back and they were rebuilding the city, uh, it said they had to work with their swords in their hands because they were under threat constantly. Uh, How does that work for us? Well, I think you need to look at this in our terms as you make yourself an instrument in the hands of the Lord. Because ultimately this is Jesus' kingdom and Jesus is advancing and building his kingdom. We sang about that in Psalm 2 earlier in the service. Psalm 2 verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You see that same language here to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. Isn't that interesting? Psalms 2 and Psalm 149, the second from the beginning, the second from the end. Those Psalms are hitting on this same theme. Only what's interesting is that while in Psalm 2, it's the Messiah who's, who's, who's working out this great victory. And now in Psalm 149 at the end, it's God's people 
as they serve the Messiah, verse 9 says, that is your honor. Every person who's connected to Christ, this is the honor that you have, that you participate in Christ's work of subduing the nations. You participate with him in that great work. And, and how do you do that? Well, you do that by living a life of faith so that your neighbors can see what, what a Christian life looks like. You do that by saying no to sin and to temptation and saying yes to obeying and following God. You say that by speaking God's word. God's word is called the sharp two-edged sword. And so we, we speak that word to others around us. We tell others about Jesus Christ. He's described in the book of Revelation as the one carrying the, the two-edged sword. Uh, we make decisions that honor God. We die to ourselves and we live to him. And in every way, as we trust him and we live lives of faithful obedience, God uses us to advance his kingdom. And that's an amazing thing. This is what Paul writes about in Romans 16, verses 19 to 20. And Paul writes there, for your obedience, okay, talking about their, your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Again, it's Jesus who subdues the devil. But the scripture says that those who are in Christ have this profound privilege of working with him to advance his kingdom in the world. So this is one of the greatest ways you show gratitude to God. Uh, you worship him in public and private on the one hand, but you serve him faithfully every day in the place that he's called you. You work with him as he advances his kingdom. And we read earlier in the service from John chapter 18 how Jesus fought when he was facing the cross. He didn't fight with violence. He submitted himself to the will of God before Pilate. He admitted he was the king. But at the same time, he didn't do anything to stop what was going to happen, his execution on the cross. And he did that joyfully, willingly. Into your hands I commit my spirit, he says to the Lord. And this is the way you and I are called to fight. We fight by praising him, by worshiping him, by rejoicing in all circumstances. And we give thanks because he has removed our sins. He made us and takes care of us. He gives us the victory over death. And he promises to use us as he advances his kingdom. And those are all reasons why we should thank God. Uh, we need his help. We don't do it like we should. But thanks be to him that Jesus Christ was our faithful servant. And through his grace, may God more and more help us to be living lives of gratitude as he calls us to do. Let's pray and we'll ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we do give thanks that you are a gracious God who has come to sinners like us, has taken away our sins, and uh, has given us every reason to thank him uh, 
Lord, how amazing it is that you use us in this great work that you are doing of uh, subduing Satan's kingdom and bringing the kingdom of glory into the world. We know that's all Jesus' work, and yet by your grace, you promise to use your people in that process. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the opportunity you've given us to express our gratitude to you just in simply living ordinary Christian lives day by day. Lord, help us to see the profound privilege we have of of thanking you in our worship and then thanking you as we live our lives, serving you faithfully. And we pray that by your grace, you would help us uh, more and more to be faithful in doing just that. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And now let's uh, sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 149, selection B. As I said, we'll we'll work on this as our um, Psalm of the Month in the month of December. And we'll get a running start at December here by singing it this this morning. Uh, Again, it just reminds us that we sing our praise to the Lord even as we seek to fight for his glory. Let's stand and we'll sing together. 